Psalms chapter 8 To the choir master, according to the gritted, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Lord, this morning we are here to praise your name, to contemplate your majesty and your glory that you have set above the heavens. Lord, we pray as we consider this amazing psalm, Psalm 8, that, Lord, you would stir our hearts to be worshipers. Lord, that you would continue to direct our affections upon you. Lord, we know that if our hearts are set on anything in creation, we're set up for disappointment. But if our hearts are set upon you, oh Lord, we're set up for eternal joy. And so this morning, would you stir our hearts? Would you instruct us in your word? Would you guide us into what it looks like to live faithfully as your creation here on this wonderful planet that you've given to us? So Lord, bless our time now in this passage. Speak to us, minister to us, and strengthen our faith, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Psalm chapter 8. Now, the Psalms are amazing. We've already talked about this. People love the Psalms. But Psalm 8, by many people's accounts, is one of the high points in the Psalms. Um, an incredible, incredible Psalm. A beautiful work of poetry and a stirring nine verses. In fact, in 1969, when the Apollo 11 spacecraft went to the moon, world leaders were invited to record a short message that was going to be put on a disc that was carried to the moon and would be left there on the lunar surface. The Pope at the time, Pope Paul VI, aptly chose Psalm chapter 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him. This psalm has been called a psalm for stargazers. Now, technically, the psalm is a hymn of praise, but the context or the setting or occasion for the praise is a nighttime gaze at the heavens. One wonders if this psalm was originally composed or at least originally contrived in the mind of David during his shepherding years. When David would have been out in the uh, hillsides, the countrysides of Bethlehem as a young man in complete darkness and able to just look up as he's watching the sheep at night and stare into the beautiful starlit evening and see these amazing heavenly bodies above his head. We, of course, don't know for sure, but 
One, one does wonder if that was where he got this vision in Psalm chapter 8. The psalm is enveloped by an inclusio, which is a poetic technique where the start and the finish of the psalm are the same. So look at verse 1 and verse 9. You'll notice that they say the exact same thing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And an inclusio gives a sense of completeness to the reader. You started with that idea, and then when you get to it there in verse 9, you're like, okay, I'm done with this idea or this work of literature here. Also, the inclusio shows us that despite the majority of this psalm being about man, the main purpose of the psalm is to draw our attention to the majesty of God. That's what David's doing here. He's drawing our attention, lifting our gaze, stirring our hearts to the majesty of God himself. And thus, in verses 1 and 2, the psalm begins with an exclamation of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice the two usages there of Lord. The first one is in all caps in our English Bible. And the second one just begins with a capital L. As we've talked about before, when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, the translators are helping you to know that what's underneath that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's covenantal name. It's the name that the Lord revealed to Moses at the burning bush and the name that God identified himself by to his chosen people. So the verse says, O Yahweh, and then it says, Our Adonai which is another Hebrew word that is translated Lord. It means master. It means governor. Adonai carries the idea of the one who rules. It's the person who's in charge. And so David here is saying, Oh Yahweh, oh Lord, our Lord, our governor, our ruler, our king. If you couple this with the rest of the verse, where Yahweh's name is being renowned throughout the earth and his glory is being set above the heavens, what we're dealing with in verse 1 here is a royal title. David is seeing the Lord, his own God, Yahweh, as the one who rules over the heavens and rules over all of creation. The word majestic means excellent or beautiful or splendid. And so in verse 1 here, this is praise of the highest order. And he says that it's God's name that is majestic. What he means by that is that God himself is majestic. To praise God's name is to praise the one whose name it is. Or to put it differently, a person's name or reputation is an extension of the person themselves. And so as David is praising the name of the Lord and envisioning God's name being renowned throughout the earth, he's praising Yahweh himself. Now, what's interesting is that at this time in history, Yahweh, the one true and living God with presumably few exceptions, was only known in a small part of the earth, in Israel at this time. And yet David here in Psalm chapter 8 understands Yahweh to be the God and the King over all of the world. He sees God's reputation and fame spread from sea to shining sea. The fact that God's glory here is set above the heavens tells us that unlike earthly rulers, God's power and splendor is not just revealed 
in some earthly empire or territory that God rules over. No, no, no. It's displayed over all of creation. This is an exclamation of praise. Now, verse 2 is the hardest verse to translate in Psalm chapter 8. I think Spurgeon is right when he suggests that the verse seems to say that not only is God's glory seen in the heavens above, but the earth beneath is telling of his majesty too. In other words, the most splendid heavenly bodies and the most feeble earthly bodies, infants and babies, are declaring his glory to the shame of God's arrogant and boastful foes. Sure, many proud skeptics have looked out at the majesty and the beauty and the splendor of the natural world and concluded boastfully that there is no God. But we read elsewhere that the heavens above declare the glory of God. And Romans 1 reminds us that creation itself testifies to God's existence. And so all humanity is without excuse. And therefore, according to the Psalms, it is the fool who says there is no God. And sure, many proud skeptics have ridiculed the childlike faith of believers of all ages throughout the centuries and smirked at the children of the faithful as being hopelessly naive. But according to our Lord Jesus, it is to such that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And so God in his infinite wisdom has ordained that through the glories of the natural world and the simplicity of a child's faith, he would be ordained or adored with praise and silence his enemies. Isn't it children who are often the most bold and sincere in their faith? I love that about kids. Kids are the ones who are willing to ask the stranger or the hardened family member the tough questions. Do you love Jesus? Why not? You know, kids are just direct. They're bold with it. They're so sincere in their faith. Isn't it children who oftentimes sing God's praises most passionately and devotedly? One of my favorite things about the school that my children go to, I've shared this before, but they go to Coastline Christian Academy off Cathedral Oaks. And every morning they get the kids together. And there's about 115 of them, but they get all these elementary school kids together for chapel. And when they start singing worship, man, these children are just bursting out in song. It's the most amazing thing to listen to. It's so beautiful and heartwarming. And they've got their little precious hands raised and they're just singing to the Lord. It's beautiful. Isn't it the children that we are meant to emulate? Look at what we find in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You get the sense that they're waiting for Jesus to be like, oh, it's you. And Jesus says to them, or rather, he calls a child to him and he puts him in the midst of them. And then he says to them, truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And family, wasn't it the children in Matthew's gospel who continued to sing Jesus's praises in the temple after the crowds of the big people fizzled out on Palm Sunday? Here again, Matthew 21, 14 through 16. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, 
and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, quoting Psalm 8 two, Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And wouldn't it be consistent with God's special love for children if millions upon millions of little ones whose lives were cut tragically short and who could from an earthly standpoint only be described as the least of these be among the great ones in our Father's kingdom? Oh, how clever our God is. So kids here this morning, listen up. God is glorified through your worship. God is not waiting for you to grow up so that he can use you, so that you can bring him glory. You can serve God right now. Now, as we move along in this psalm, we're now getting to the stargazing section in verses 3 and 4. And we see an experience here of humanity's insignificance. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. David writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So we can picture here David again just looking into a night sky and seeing the moon there and seeing the stars there. And He's taken back by it. Now, for most of us, um, we can't see the stars super well or see all the heavenly bodies super well because of things like light pollution. Um, But telescopes and cameras are awesome. They help do more than just compensate for what we can't see. Um, Look at some of these images we're going to throw on the screen here. Now, when I thought about doing this, I was thinking of our big screens in the sanctuary, and this would have been much more helpful on those screens. But you can still get an idea. You see the Milky Way here through a lens of a photographer. So incredible to see some of these images of outer space. Just beautiful, the things that we can see. Of course, even this week, the world is being... Uh, blown away and having our breath taken away by video footage of the surface of Mars. And uh, people are just in awe of what we're being able to see out in our universe. But of course, what we're seeing is just such a small fraction of the glories that are out in the heavenly body. And David looks at all of these things and he says of them that they are just the work of God's fingers. It reminds us that God, the creator, is beyond or outside of all of the universe, not just our own solar system, not just the Milky Way galaxy. The entire universe is just the work of God's hands. God here by David is being pictured as sort of like a a potter sitting at his wheel, just fashioning with his hands everything that we are seeing with our eyes and the many things that we cannot see. God fashioned the entire universe, and it's a universe that leaves us in awe. How majestic then must the creator himself be? Looking into the vastness of space has an effect on us as humans. When we stare out into the expanses of outer space, it makes us feel quite small. Makes us feel quite insignificant. Nobody can look out into space and feel big. Think, wow, I'm super important. Wow, I'm I'm the one that's in control of everything. No, you feel small. You feel 
insignificant. You realize that you're just a speck on a tiny speck in a tiny solar system in one small galaxy among presumably millions and millions of galaxies. This leads David to the question of the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him and care for him? Or some translations say, or pay attention to him. In other words, David's saying, what's so special about us? When I look at all of that, I see everything that God has created. What in the world is so special about us? I wonder if you've ever wrestled with questions like these. Trying to find your place in the universe. Asking, what's the meaning of my life? Is, is my existence significant in any way? Or am I just, a, again, a, just another speck of dust that'll be here for a few dozen years and be gone? Is there any meaning or worth or significance to my existence? This has met, led many atheists and agnostics to the unsettling conclusion that there is nothing special about us. I mean, what else are they supposed to say? If there's no designer, if there's no grand meaning to the universe, then no, there's nothing special about us. We are just specks of dust. And before we can blink, the universe is going to sweep us away and we'll be forgotten for all of eternity. That is the conclusion you'd get from natural revelation. But David, through special revelation, sees things differently. David knows that God the true God, the Lord, Yahweh, is mindful of us and that he cares for us. Even though we are specks of dust, he says we fill the mind of God in verse 4. This is astonishing. So David asks the question, what is man? Is there anything special about us? There must be, he's saying, God pays, God pays attention to us, but why? What makes us significant? And this brings us to verses 5 through 8 where David now provides an explanation of humanity's significance. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. In these verses, we're given two reasons as to why we have significance, and they relate to our creation and our calling. First, David is going to point out here that we are created in the image of God, and then that we have been given dominion over the rest of creation. Now, notice this is super important that our, our significance or our worth as human beings does not come from anything that we have done for ourselves. It comes to us from what God has done for us. Check it out. He says, you have made him. You have crowned him. You have given him. You have put all things under him. David is seeing that from, from the perspective of a naturalist, again, there's nothing significant about us. We're nothing but because God exists and God created us, God has infused every single one of us with intrinsic worth and dignity and value and our lives do matter. So let's look more carefully at what God has done for us. Again, he says, you have 
made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. In the hierarchy of living beings, humans have been made a little lower, he says, than the heavenly beings. So it sounds like it's God and then angels and then humans and then beasts of the, the earth and etc. after that. But what's really interesting here is that the Hebrew word that the ESV has translated heavenly beings is the word Elohim. Elohim. And that is the Hebrew word for God or God's little g, but it's kind of a generic Hebrew word for God. Now, it is true that there are a few texts in the Old Testament that use Elohim and are certainly referring to angels or demons. And that's why the translators oftentimes put heavenly beings here uh, in Psalm chapter 8. But it's quite possible that here in Psalm chapter 8, what David is trying to say is that God has made human beings a little bit lower than God. Tremper Longman, the distinguished Old Testament scholar, writes this. He says, humans are less than God to be sure, but they are closer to God than anything else in the created order. We see this truth spelled out in the creation account from Genesis chapter 1 which David without question has in mind here in Psalm chapter 8. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So our significance and our worth comes in the first place from the fact that we are all, no matter your age, No matter your sex, no matter your skin color, no matter your your cultural background, every single one of us are created in the image of God. And therefore, we all have significance. We all have intrinsic worth. I mean, could we possibly be crowned with more glory and more honor than that? We are image bearers of God. But we're crea- because we're created in God's image, that means that as it relates to the creation, we too are royalty. Notice all of the royalty language here. David writes, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Who wears crowns? You have given him dominion or you have made him to rule. You have put all things under his feet. These are all royal expressions in these verses that are talking about our place in the universe. The psalm began with God as king, and now humans are made royalty too. Some theologians put it this way, that as human beings, we are sort of God's vice regents who have authority to rule for the Lord here on planet Earth. This is where our second sense of significance and worth comes from. 
It comes now from the calling that we've been given. What are we made to rule over? David writes, over the works of your hands. What he means there is over all of creation, right? Go back to verse uh, three, and we realize that it was the heavens that are the work of God's fingers. And so now we're called to rule over the work of God's hands. Of course, verses seven and eight picture all of the animal kingdom that humanity has been given dominion over. At creation, remember, Adam was responsible to care for the Garden of Eden and Adam was responsible for naming all of the animals. As Adam's daughters and sons, that authority and that responsibility continues on with each and every one of us. You could put it this way. This is humanity's calling or humanity's vocation as image bearers of God. You and I are called to rule over creation. Now, in the Genesis account in verse 28 of chapter 1, which we already read, uh, Moses writes there that, that God calls us to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it. And that word subdue carries the idea that the earth at that time was sort of unruly and it was brimming over with untapped potential and resources that God was calling human beings to utilize for human flourishing. That, that the earth existed so that humans could tap into these unlocked potentials all over planet earth and leverage these things for human flourishing in ways that would bless the creation. Now this is done in myriad ways. And this idea, this vocation and calling gives significance and gives value to all of our good work. I mean, think about all the different industries that probably are represented just in our church here. People working in medicine and healthcare, people working in education and construction and law enforcement and the military and on and on. I mean, there's, there's so many different vocations. And so long as what we're doing in our work is contributing to human flourishing, then this is a noble and a worthy and a valuable use of your life. But here's an important thing to remember. Our unlocking of the potential of creation so that it works for us should be tempered with our responsibility to use creation respectfully and wisely. I want you to think about it like this. Just because a king has dominion over his subjects it does not follow that he can treat them any way he wants to. God would expect an earthly ruler to exercise benevolent rule if they're going to honor the Lord. That all of the decisions that that king or queen would be making would be decisions that, yes, are good for the kingdom, but are also good for every citizen of the kingdom. As Christians who understand this, you and I should be the most passionate people about caring for creation. Now, I know that sometimes Christians get uncomfortable when we talk about things like environmentalism. And I understand that because uh, there's definitely wrong ways to think about and attempt to care for the creation. Um, a lot of Christians who speak in this space and write in this space and educate in this space actually avoid the term environmentalism and prefer the term creation care. And there's an important distinction there. 
and I'll try to help explain it really quickly, but environmentalism oftentimes makes it so that nature becomes a God that we're supposed to serve, right? So nature all of a sudden becomes the most important thing and we're actually subject, subjected to or in submission and service to nature. Creation care, though, views it this way. Nature is not a God to be served. Nature is a gift to be stewarded. That God has given us nature God has given us this beautiful creation. God has given us all of these amazing resources at our disposal to steward toward the ends of bringing glory to God through human flourishing and responsible care of all of God's beautiful creation. So, here is where man's search for meaning ends. According to God's word, our significance comes from being image bearers of God and having dominion over creation. And this revelation to David thousands of years ago rightly leads him to another exclamation of praise, which is so fitting. And so in verse 9, we end where we began with an exclamation of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Reflecting on this psalm, Tim Keller wrote this. The universe reveals God's glory. Aren't humans just specks of dust in this vastness? Physically, yes. Yet we fill the mind of God. The astonishment of the psalmist should be ours. Why should God care about us? Because he has made us in his image and given us the world he created to care for as his agents living with care for the land, sea, and air, and all who live there, and doing justice for every human being stamped with his image, brings God glory. As a human race, we are not doing this very well. But Jesus has come, and eventually the world will be under his feet, and then everything will be made right. And Keller is exactly right. The author of Hebrews picks up on this exact idea, and the author of Hebrews sees that the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8 is not going to come through our efforts. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm Psalm chapter 8 comes about through God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, we know exactly where, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what's the author of Hebrews saying? Again, he's saying that the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8 is coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our vocation or our calling as human beings will be brought to fulfillment. 
But it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that our vocation or our calling is also brought to greater fullness. See, through faith, the scriptures teach us that you and I are united to Christ. And once you and I are united to Christ, we actually are being conformed into the image of Christ. Yes, we are image bearers of God. But because of Genesis 3 and the fall, the image of God has not been destroyed in us, but it has been defaced in us. And so God sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this earth, born of a woman, to become a man for our salvation. And Christ is the exact imprint of the divine nature. And Christ is the true and perfect human being. And so as we by faith are joined to Jesus Christ, we are being conformed into his image. Or we should say, we're being reformed into the image that we defaced through our sin. And so as Christians, Jesus then calls us to a more full vocation than what we've been talking about this morning. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us that in addition to having dominion over the earth, Jesus says that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations. That you and I are to be calling other men, women, and children to put their faith in Jesus Christ so that they too can be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what our vocation is. This is what our calling is. We're image bearers of God and we are taking on with greater and greater degrees of glory, the image of Jesus Christ himself. And we are stewarding the creation that God has given to us toward the ends of human flourishing for the glory of God and for the good of all people. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is marvelous to think about who you are in your incredible wisdom and power that you fashioned this entire universe with all of its mysteries, with all of its beauty and splendor and magnificence. It's all the work of your hands. And Lord, you have placed us here on this earth, not as small specks of dust, although from one uh, standpoint, that's exactly what we look like. But you put us here as your children to have dominion over all of creation, to reflect your image to this amazing creation. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to be reminded of the amazing significance and worth that each of our lives have. Because there are times in all of our lives where we feel insignificant. Sometimes we question, what is our meaning? What is our purpose here? Does my life have value? Lord, I pray that even as David was reminding his own soul, that even though, again, we are just specks on this little planet, we fill your mind. You pay attention to us. You care for us. You've created us in your image. You've given us an amazing calling, a greater calling than anything else in creation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with dignity 
And Lord, I pray that you would fill us this morning with a passion to use all of the gifts and all of the abilities that you've given to each one of us in the work that we're doing every single day in raising children, in loving spouses, in loving neighbors, in going into the office, or going out into the workplace. I pray, Lord, that every day we would be filled with a sense of awe at the calling that you've given to us. And Lord, as Christians, I pray that you would help us to always be mindful of the great calling of Christ upon us, that we are to go into all the nations and make disciples. And I pray, Lord, that we would be calling people constantly to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins so that they can be restored unto you and so that they can enjoy life eternal. So Lord, put us on mission this week. Fill our hearts with faith. Fill our hearts with wonder. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.